I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 1, Chapter 6, Unity and Variety, Session 1, Word and Image. You may recall my definition of poetry from Chapter 4. Poetry says with words what cannot be said in words. Here I will add that, similarly, plays say with words, characters, movement, story, sets, costumes, and sound effects what cannot be said any other way. That is, the medium of plays is complex, but all its various elements must be harmonized into a single experience if the play is going to be meaningful. If those elements are not harmonized, the play fails to satisfy us. In a faulty play, there may be a character who does not fit the context, or, in other words, breaks decorum, like a stand-up comic at a funeral, or a country bumpkin on the Supreme Court. I will discuss decorum in the fifth session of Chapter 7. Or perhaps the through-line of a play, the developing main movement of a story or idea, breaks off in the middle, or changes direction, or comes to no satisfactory conclusion. Let's say a teenager runs away from home in the first act, but in the second act is back home with never any mention made of the escape or its effects. A play may have anachronisms, like a cell phone in a play about Julius Caesar, or an ox cart in a play set in 21st century Los Angeles. All such breaks, unless they can somehow be resolved in a greater unity by the end of the story, limit our appreciation of a play. Here's an example. In the parts of Two Noble Kinsmen written by Shakespeare, the noble cousins, Palamon and Arcite, are paragons of chivalry and loyalty to their beloved Amelia. But at one point in the middle of the play, in a section written by Shakespeare's collaborator, Fletcher, the two characters have a locker-room chat about the girls they had made love to in earlier years. Their talk would be just fine for two other boys talking about girls, but it does not fit at all with what these virtuous boys say and do in the rest of the play, or with what is said about them. This conversation is totally out of character. It's an example of Fletcher's breaking the play's unity of tone and character, as well as decorum, in order to have some uncouth fun. To be satisfying, a play must combine all its various parts into a single meaningful reality. Unless the play is shallow, that reality is not something that can be expressed in any fewer words than those of the whole play. This is not because the meaning in a good play is unclear. The good play makes it crystal clear. But its clarity comes to us through the experience of the play as a whole. We know it when it's there, and we miss it when it's not. But the meaning itself is beyond simplification. For this reason, though it can be useful for comparison, it can be misleading to take Shakespeare's plots characters and language out of their context. Be very careful when people quote Shakespeare to you without being aware of the context. People who get a kick out of quoting the first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers, from Henry VI, Part 1, Act 4, Scene 2, Lines 76 to 77, usually don't realize that the lines in context express the folly and danger of mob rule. When, at the end of Macbeth, 
The title character says that life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's Act 5, Scene 5, lines 26 to 28. The line is a sign of the despair of the character, not of the author. Just as all roads once led to Rome, in the world of any Shakespeare play, every road, every word, image, speech, action, character, scene, plot, element, and theme leads to the heart of the play's meaning. Each part contributes to the whole picture and contains the whole picture in little, as in a hologram. I hope you have had the experience of seeing a hologram. It's a three-dimensional image made using laser light. When laser light, which is coherent, meaning its photons vibrate in phase, is beamed at an object and reflected back to a photographic plate along several different paths, the result is a 3D picture. Let's say you've made a hologram of a room in your home. When you look at it, everything seems to be in 3D space, not flat as in a normal photograph. The desk chair really feels as if it is in front of the desk. The curtains as if they really are behind the couch. Everything comes forward or recedes as it does in reality. You feel you could step into the picture. But here's more mystery. If you cut the 3D hologram image in half, each half contains the whole picture. Cut the hologram of the room in half, and each half will still show your whole 3D room. Cut those halves in half again, and each quarter will show the whole room. The only difference is that the size of the image will be smaller. Because of the coherence of laser light, the image is so imprinted on the photographic plate that every part records the whole. The hologram serves as a good metaphor for any play by Shakespeare. All the parts imply the whole. Shakespeare's imagination is such that each of his plays provides an experience of a single, unified meaning with deep implications for the personal, social, political, moral, and spiritual life of man. At the same time, that whole meaning is there in every part of the play, only smaller. Because Shakespeare's vision, too, is coherent, like laser light, he is able to make the play's meaning clear and at the same time full of entertaining variety. Thus, in a Shakespeare play, as in any great work of art, all roads lead to the meaning. Let's look at some examples of unity within variety. We'll start with words. Particular words or phrases may be repeated in various places in a single play to build up a composite meaning, or they may change their meaning depending on who is saying them and under what circumstances. Take the word water in Macbeth, for example. When Macbeth has killed the good King Duncan, he comes in with bloody hands and says at Act 2, Scene 2, lines 57 to 60, Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No, this my hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the green one red. He has not used the word water itself, but his phrases assert that all the water in the world cannot clean his hands of blood. A few lines later, Lady Macbeth says, of her own bloody hands, 
A little water clears us of this deed. Is she right? We know water can wash off the physical blood. Can water clear them of guilt? Macbeth next sees blood itself as a river. I am in blood stepped in so far that, should I wade no more, returning were as tedious as go o'er. That's Act 3, Scene 4, lines 135 to 137. Toward the end, when Lady Macbeth comes in sleepwalking at Act 5, Scene 1, lines 26 to 62, her hell is to be washing her hands forever and never succeeding in washing the blood away. Doctor, look how she rubs her hands. Gentlewoman, it is an accustomed action with her to seem thus washing her hands. I have known her continue in this a quarter of an hour. Lady Macbeth, yet here's a spot. What, will these hands ne'er be clean? Wash your hands. All this washing in physical water and imaginary water cannot rid her of guilt. The implication is that the only water that might serve is the holy water of repentance. But she is far from repenting. There is a wonderful pun in the title Twelfth Night or What You Will. The subtitle is partly a theatrical joke, a cliché phrase, as in the titles of Much Ado About Nothing and All's Well That Ends Well and As You Like It. But the word will, in What You Will, also hints at the subject of the play. Will in Shakespeare's time meant not only one's ability to choose, that is, the free will, but also willfulness and also sexual desire. The play shows us a world of people locked into their own willful ideas about love until a pair of twins from outside their world break into it and turn things upside down. It is Providence's way of correcting the proud human will, mix things up in order to straighten them out, as the people never could do for themselves. Follow the word nothing in King Lear, and you will find that five repetitions of the word begin the dramatic conflict of the play. Lear. What can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters? Speak. Cordelia? Nothing, my lord. Lear. Nothing? Cordelia. Nothing. Lear. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. That's Act 1, Scene 1, lines 85 to 90. Thereafter, the word appears over and over in many significant variations on the theme. When asked later in the same scene whether he will change his mind about disinheriting his good daughter and instead give something for her dowry, Lear replies at line 245, Nothing, I have sworn, I am firm. When, in the next scene, Gloucester asks his bastard son, what paper were you reading? Edmund. Nothing, my lord. Gloucester. No? What needed then that terrible dispatch of it into your pocket? The quality of nothing hath not such need to hide itself. Let's see. Come, if it be nothing, I shall not need spectacles. In Act 1, Scene 4, lines 126 to 133, Lear has the following exchange with his fool, beginning with the conclusion of a song. Fool, and thou shalt have more than two tens to a score. A score means twenty. Kent, this is nothing, fool. Fool, 
Then tis like the breath of an unfeed lawyer. You gave me nothing for it. Can you make no use of nothing, Nuncle? Lear. Why, no, boy. Nothing can be made out of nothing. The fool soon adds, at lines 187 to 194, Thou hast pared thy wit of both sides, and left nothing in the middle. I am better than thou art now. I am a fool. Thou art nothing. When the Earl of Kent, in disguise as a lowly serving man, is put in the stocks, he observes at Act Two, Scene Two, lines 165 to 166, Nothing almost sees miracles but misery. And when Edgar, to save his life, takes on the disguise of a mad beggar, he says at Act Two, Scene Three, line 21, Edgar, I nothing am. Seeing that mad beggar, Lear thinks the fellow has been brought to his plight by daughters like Lear's. Couldst thou save nothing? Wouldst thou give them all? Death, traitor, nothing could have subdued nature to such a lowness but his unkind daughters. That's Act 3, Scene 4, lines 64 to 71. Edgar observes to the heir at Act 4, Scene 1, lines 8 to 9, The wretch that thou hast blown unto the worst owes nothing to thy blasts. And when he is beginning to take on his own voice again at Act 4, Scene 6, line 9, he says, in nothing am I changed but in my garments. Finally, when Edgar is facing his villainous brother at Act 5, Scene 3, lines 94 to 95, he says, Thou art in nothing less than I have here proclaimed thee. What do all these nothings add up to? Something very profound indeed, but not something that can be said quite apart from the words of the whole play. It is true that measuring by arithmetic, more than two tens to a score is zero, since two tens equal twenty. But measuring by the spirit, by the moral implications, nothing is a gift when having all blinds men to what is valuable. In order to save Lear from himself, from his worship of his own ego, reality, or we might say nature, or the gods, or providence, has reduced him to nothing. No kingdom, no possessions, no nights, no place to sleep, and finally, no rationality. But this reduction through suffering redeems him. Kent has said, nothing almost sees miracles but misery. Lear's misery, his becoming nothing, prepares him to see the miracle of the continued goodness in his youngest daughter, Cordelia. It also prepares us to see the miracle of his restored love. As we saw with Water in Macbeth, not only words may be repeated and developed through a play to unfold its meaning. Images, too, may be repeated and developed. In The Merchant of Venice, those suitors who wish to marry the wealthy Portia must guess in which of three caskets her picture lies. If they pick the wrong one, they must swear never to marry. We find in Act 2, Scene 7, lines 5, 7, and 9, that each casket has a motto upon it. On the gold casket, Who chooseth me shall gain what many men desire. On the silver, Who chooseth me shall get as much as he deserves. And on the lead, Who chooseth me 
must give and hazard all he hath. Guess which casket holds the picture of the lady. The play is filled with images of gold and silver, and money and acquisition and wealth. Some seek to gain it, some seek to give it away. Where does true reward lie? The caskets tell the answer. Follow the images of black and white through Othello, and you will see how Shakespeare uses their contrast to unify the play. The stereotype of the time had white representing good and black evil. In medieval and Renaissance paintings, the devil was painted black. Othello is, in Shakespeare's speech, a blackamoor, meaning a dark-skinned African. Desdemona is white. The difference in their complexions is the ground of this use of images in the play. But difference of race is not the play's point, nor is the play implying that Othello is bad because he is black, or Desdemona good because she is white. The deepest evil in the play is that of Iago, who is also white. Othello stands for man, and the question of the play is whether man will choose to side with good or with evil, whether he will love or hate, forgive or kill. In other words, will Othello give up his pride for his wife or his wife for his pride? Shakespeare and his audience believed that all men are sinners, that is, to some degree black on the inside. Othello is, like all of us, tainted with the devil's color. Nonetheless, like all of us, he has a choice. Desdemona, who means faith and love, or Iago, who means jealousy and betrayal. What will he do? Will he keep his soul pure despite his fallen human nature? Or will he rather choose to corrupt his soul by killing her? Note that in Shakespeare's day, when the actors would have been Caucasian, the actor playing Othello would have added to the words some heavy makeup to make the character's race visible. In our modern, diverse society, many theaters engage in colorblind casting, and our power to suspend disbelief makes the race of the actor irrelevant in most cases. I plan to discuss the willing suspension of disbelief in the first session of Chapter 15. In this case, however, the colors of the skins of Othello and Desdemona play a crucial role in the imagery of the play. Casting a white actor as Othello or a black one as Desdemona would significantly obscure the overall effect of the play. In the next session, we'll look at how unity and variety may be discerned in speech, action, scene, character, and plot. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare.